From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. Right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me from Missouri to Ira McCauley. Ira, you have had a, a tough, tough week, per se. Yeah, man, it's been a it's been a sad sad week around the Macaulay household and the Montmartre community and and uh, I mean our hunting community for at least part of it in general because we lost you know the face of of the Momars brand by and large my my 11 year old dog Sadie um, you know, she was still just such a stud in great shape and happy to do anything all the time and. Uh, Man, she went from 100% normal to dead in two days. It was a, a bad and very unusual situation, and uh, we were we were really shit out of luck, and and didn't know it there until the till the very end. So, man, tough, tough pill to swallow. What what exactly happened with her? Well, Corey, Corey, my older son, and I, we went to. Went to Rockbridge there for the weekend, so we went and shot sporting clays and fish and had a great time. We came home Sunday, and she was her normal self, you know, running around and, and uh, wanting us to throw the Kong and being a general pain in the butt like normal. And uh, her her collar, her battery and her electric fence collar had gone dead, which, you know, that happened every so often. She'd get out of the yard and go cruise the neighborhood and, you know, so uh, we knew that that had happened. Got a new battery in there. Anyway, Monday morning I woke up and I saw that she'd thrown up several times in the garage, which wasn't that unusual. I mean, she was a daggum pig like most labs. And, you know, there were persimmon seeds in there and sunflower seeds. I mean, she didn't eat anything. She'd get her daggum mouth on. And um, so I didn't think much of it. And, uh, you know, I mean, heck, we're right before duck season, you know. And so I've got a list as long as my leg of things I need to kind of be working on up at the uh, farm. And so I took off Monday morning and went to the farm and uh, Tuesday morning, Kelly called me, my wife, and she said, Hey, they still puking. She, she seems kind of, you know, she's not in very good shape. I mean, not that she was in bad shape, but still throwing up. So normally, you know, that'll run its course pretty quick. No diarrhea or anything. I was like, I'll be home this afternoon, just, you know, if she's getting worse, take her up to one of the clinics, but if not, I'll deal with her when I get home. So I come home that afternoon and, uh, you know, she, she's pretty sick. I mean, she's laying in the yard. I'm like, man, that is, 
That is not her. I mean, she normally, even when she's eating crazy stuff, you know, she's up and around. So I take her up to the office with Corey and take an x-ray, and it looks pretty cut and dried, like a, a gastric foreign body. Uh, take the temp, it's normal. Get a catheter into her, run her a liter of fluid, give her some IV ampicillin, uh, give her some serenia to get her vomiting under control. I'm like, okay, no big deal. She's got something in there. We'll explore tomorrow, yank it out of there. Business usual. I mean, we do that all the time, you know. And uh, color was good. Everything was good. So I wake up the next morning, and I'm like, man, she looks terrible. What is going on here? I mean, this dog is super sick. Like, now her color's terrible. Her refill's terrible. She can't walk. She can't do anything. I'm like, this is not a gastric foreign body dog. She's got to have something else in addition going on, pancreatitis or whatever. So we take more films. Man, they look way worse than the day before. Now we've got shit blown up everywhere. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. I talked to, you know, I sent it to the radiologist. He's like, I think you still have a primary gastric foreign body. Maybe you got some pancreatitis too. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm telling you, this dog is not. There's something else going on. This dog is in bad shape. So, you know, I mean, you're familiar with the lingo here. It, it may be above some people's heads, but you know, we run our general blood work, amylase and lipase are normal. Those are pancreatic enzymes. White blood cell count's normal. Glucose is a little bit high. I mean, just not a whole lot there. Um, negative for pancreatitis. So I said, run a spec CPL. So that's a canine pancreatic specific lipase test. And it was abnormal. I'm like, well, we got conflicting re reports. It really doesn't matter. Um, we're going to have to do an exploratory on her anyway. So we ran her a couple liters of fluids and some head of starch and some more antibiotics and gave her some potassium chloride. That's a lot of big words. But anyway, we took her from on the, at death's door back to the dog that trotted out the, out the door and went outside and peed and trotted back in. Color was looking good again and got her warmed up. So we brought her back to life, it was time to cut her. And I'm thinking, okay, well, whatever it is, even when I was putting the knife to her, I thought, okay, whatever it is, I'm gonna get in there and I'm gonna fix it. I cut into her and there was blood and necrotic fat the second I got through the linea alba. Now, I, I do surgery every day, been doing it every day for 25 years. That is not what I was expecting and it's never good. So, open her up, and her pylorus is like humongous, and and looks absolutely terrible. So I'm like, man, shit. I call my brother, and he comes and gloves up, and he gets in there with me, and I'm like, dude, it looked like a damn M80 went off inside her belly. Oh man. And and of course, I you know, I mean, this is like. We we do this stuff every day, um, and I'm like, man, Aaron, this is this is really bad. Like nothing. I I mean, I've, I've never seen it before. I mean, I've I've done exploratories on many dogs that have had pancreatitis. You know, your pancreas be unhappy and large and inflamed and angry, and you'll have some edema around that. But her pancreas was exploded. There was really nothing there. Um, except some bloody little shredded up clotted piece of tissue 
and everything that it had touched looked like you poured battery acid on it. And uh, her pylorus was a disaster. Part of her fundus looked okay. Can't you know? I'm still thinking, okay, I can do some sort of a crazy surgery and and try to get her in a shape where we can try to keep her alive. Then we flipped her, flipped her stomach around, man, and and the backside of her fundus and all her gastric vessels that were coming out of her were just. It was. We determined that it was non-surgical at that point, and dude, it was just. Oh uh, man. There was nothing to do but put her to sleep right there on the table. It was the only only choice we had that was reasonable and humane. So that's what we did, man. That's what we did. And uh, you know, that's that's got to be Iris. Got to be you know going into it the night before. You you just think you're doing a surgery. Uh, matter of fact, I think I've used you one of your a picture of you pulling a foreign body from a intestine for one of the yeah. podcast covers. And yeah, I mean, we do them nonstop, you know, all the time. And this one looked like a gastric foreign body. Um, I mean, that's what we were thinking we were getting into. But like I said, those dogs do not get sick. I mean, those dogs are in good shape, you know. When she was on death's door the next morning, uh, I knew that at the very least we had something additional, but then once we started peeling back the layers of the onion, the more we looked, the crappier of a position we realized we were in. But you know, still right. that happens all the time. I mean, you know, yeah. Well, so especially I, I with the labs. Thought, I still thought that okay, no matter what you've got going on, we'll get. You know, she was a super healthy dog, so I'm like, well, we'll get a surgical resolution that that uh, something, you know, we'll get her back fixed up. But what she ended up having, man, there's very little written about it. Uh, at least these severe cases, like she had uh, in the literature, and nobody I know has ever seen it before, like put their hands on it. But she ended up having severe acute necrotic pancreatitis where that pancreas basically explodes and all the digestive enzymes just eat away everything they touch. Right. And, uh, you know, like her stomach was just, the the pyloric portion of it was, was just unbelievable with the amount of, of steatitis, which is like dead fat, uh, just unbelievable inflammation and hemorrhage and I mean, it was, it was really bad. Her pylorus of her stomach, there was nothing left. It was adhered to everything around it. I mean, it's it just obviously a terrible situation, man. So, I mean, nobody oh. should really spend a lot of time focusing on that happening to their dog because, I mean, like I said, it's just exceedingly rare. I mean, we see pancreatitis all the time. That yeah, pancreatitis. Pancreatitis and foreign bodies are very, very common in labs because they eat and chew on everything, especially younger dogs. But, all right, this is this is what I want to focus on. You went into that surgery on your own dog, which is even, you know, got to be rough anyway. But you go into that surgery, kind of a confident doctor, veterinarian, and you turn into a, 
a sad dog owner. Because that switch, once you start digging around and you start seeing what's going on inside of your best friend, your hunting partner, you know, you, you know, there's your, your moods kind of got to change. You're like, Oh man, because you you have, you, you really, you really have no time to digest what's going on. Your, your, these dogs are so important to, to us as water fowlers. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, like when I, even when I said, okay, we need to put her to sleep. I mean, I was still in vet mode, right? And I cut off a portion of her stomach and we were going to send that off. And, you know, I, I was totally still just in tune with, you know, what was going on, what was the best objective decision and all that stuff. And so we put her to sleep and it still hadn't hit me. And then I started to sew her up and I was in total shock. I mean, I, I was like going through the motions of sewing her up. And I mean, that should be like a two to three minute closure. And I bet it took me 30 minutes to sew her up. Um, yeah, dude, I mean, I, I, was, I was just a disaster. I told, I told my boys, I said, hell, that day I cried more tears over that dog that day than I've cried over every person in the last 50 years. It was, it was rough, man. It was rough. Yeah. And I mean, you know, she, our dogs are a big part of our lives, you know, our, especially our gun dogs, but she was just such a huge part of my life because, uh, you know, I mean, she did everything with me every day. So, I mean, we started Habitat Flats together. She was a puppy, you know. She freaking was a guide dog with me for five years. She was the face of Habitat or of uh, Momarch, you know, the whole way through. She was on all of our ads, all of our box art, all of our social media. You know, she just had such a, she touched so many people in our community. Um, because she was just such a big part of Momarsh and, and of Habitat Flats, too, in the beginning, you know. And uh, there's just, I've had so many messages from people I, I forgot that I ever even guided or certainly met at different shows and stuff, but, you know, that have sent me messages saying, hey, you know, I'm just thankful I got to hunt with her then or rub her ear at this show or whatever. And it's been, it's been super touching to have all the support, but at the same time, I, I haven't even been able to respond to any of the messages or, or uh, comments yet. It, it, today, I, I, I kind of starting to come to grips to it, but uh, you know, I, I certainly the first day or two, uh, I couldn't even look at that stuff. It made me want to want to puke, you know. Oh yeah. Did it? I mean, did it? After you put her to sleep and all, you find all that you you found inside. Did it did it cross your mind as a as a dog owner, as a duck hunter, uh, with your hunt? Like I said, your hunting partner laying on the table. Did it cross your mind that you know before you put her to sleep, you weren't able to say goodbye? As crazy as I mean, it's, it may sound crazy to some, but not to others. Did, it, did that cross your mind? Well, yeah, but I mean, I, 
I like to say, yes. Uh, I certainly didn't think it, that I was going to lose her. I certainly didn't think right, I right. sleep on the table. I, it probably didn't really cross my mind until I knew I was going to call my wife and I hadn't given them the chance. I mean, I hadn't even brought up, hey, she may not be coming home. You know, we hadn't talked about that at all. So the kids didn't get to say goodbye or, or anything different than, you know, hey, dad's going to take her to the office and fix her today. Right. So, you know, that was harder on them, I think, than it was me because, you know, I was with her all morning. Like I said, she was damn near dead uh, when I got to the office. And then, you know, then we got her back to where she had some pep in her step and all that stuff. But, yeah, it it, it certainly crossed my mind, um, but more more so for my family than it was for me. I said and, and goodbye that... when after she, you know, once we'd put her to sleep, I spent a bunch of time in the room just know, ripping it in my heartstrings there. Putting her in that bag was tough, buddy. I promise you that. Ira, as you go back through the memories, because I'm sure that all of those hunting memories with Sadie, has they've been going, flashing through your mind. What's what's a couple of biggest ones that that, that pop in your head? A couple of special moments. Yeah, I mean, she was always a lucky dog. Not when it came to health. I mean, that dog tried to die on me so many freaking times. Um, But when it it came to, like, training and hunting, she always had a knack. Like, if you could go right or left, she'd always go, almost always go the right way. So, like, when she was young, we were training her, and, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, you know, know, when you're training a dog and you got to give them a little bit of, a little bit of leash, right? And, and so, like, when she got to that point where it was like, okay, we're at a junction. I could stop her and handle her, or I can let her figure it out on her own. Part of that's luck. Part of that's intuition. You can call it whatever you want. But most of the time, almost always, she'd end up on the downwind side of that friggin' bopper. You know what I mean? And, and so it just, I was always amazed that, that, that she did that. And when it came to hunting, the dog always came back with a bird. I mean, sometimes before we even started hunting, hell, I'd, I'd be putting out decoys and Sadie'd already had me two or three ducks. I'm like, geez, God, dog. I mean, <laughs> it sit in the damn kennel, you know, you're, we're going to have, I'm going to be done before we even get started. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she just, uh, there, there were so many times, especially hunting on the river. I mean, I was talking to my buddy, big gun about it yesterday where, you know, we'd either, we wouldn't know where the duck was and she'd tear ass off, you know, and come back with one or, or we'd steer, you know, go around the corner half mile down the river and they'd be like, man, we better get the boat out. And I'm like, well, let's just give her, you know, two minutes. And sure enough, here she'd come back, you know. Uh, when she was a puppy, I remember I was snow do something with some guys and uh, we'd shot into a flock. I mean, she was a puppy. She was, uh, she was not a year old. She's probably nine months old. And granted, she was getting some major, major opportunities. And so we shot into flock. I think we shot like five. So she picked them up there and we were sitting talking and all of a sudden she tears ass off. And I'm like, what is she doing? They're like, I have no idea. She ran out there like 350, 400 yards. Picks up snow goose, comes back. None of us saw it come out of the flock. None of us knew it was there, and she just did, you know, stuff like that her whole life. I mean, she was just a, 
like when when we'd send her, you know, like all, all the times I was guiding, that dog knew exactly what those ducks were going to do. So, you know, we'd shoot, let's say we'd shoot four out of the clock. One was crippled, and they got across the lake or whatever on us. And so she, you know, we, she'd go and, and there, you know, the clients would be like, no, the, the duck, 10 feet to the left or 20 feet to the right. And so they're thinking, I'm going to blow my whistle and handler. And they're like, well, why didn't you blow your whistle and handler? I said, that, that, I said, that duck screwed, man. They're like, well, what do you mean? That's not where it hit the bank. I said, trust me. She'll be back then two minutes for that duck. And sure enough, every day I got time here, she'd come back. I mean, that, she just had a knack for nothing was getting away unless it was super lively and drown itself underwater and half the time she'd come back with them, but she was just a super talented dog when it, when it came to, to that stuff, you know, and, and just the volume of retrieve that she had. I mean, she was deaf at five, unfortunately, um, or six because, you know, God knows how many snow goose spreads she'd, she'd sat in, you know, where, where we were just, you know, killing big, big numbers of snow goose and, and, uh, you know, lots and lots of ducks, uh, just, you know, different volume of, of shotgun blast. And then, you know, a guy that goes three days a week with his buddies, you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. But they learn, they learn all the little tricks too. And like, even, you know, I've got a young pup now, she's 14 months and she's doing real good, but at home, uh, if, if the if they if they saw the the whatever I threw the puppy'd beat her every time, but if they didn't see it, Sadie'd beat the puppy every time because she would use her nose. You know, the puppy didn't stand a chance if they didn't see it. She Sadie'd get it every time. You know, so you know, Ira, you bring up something a few minutes ago um, that made me think, and I, I believe it's true that. You're at a young age, you're able to see qualities in that. I think that most waterfowlers that hunt with dogs over a lifetime, or they, you know, the old sayings, you most of the time you don't have but one. But I, I kind of like Tony said, I don't believe that. I, I've had a couple out of four or five, but you know, when you have those special dogs like Sadie. You know, you're talking about a retrieving at nine months. Man, you're able to see uh, those abilities at a young age, and you're like, this dog right here is something else. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's not just Sadie. You know, a lot of young dogs, you see the light bulbs come on, right? So, like, today, we brought this young dog out there, and, you know, it's just really whatever. It didn't pick anything. It doesn't like the mud, and it's blind, or, you know, it's not marking good, or... Uh, you know, that's no good, that goose is too big, or whatever it is. And then with her, I, I'd see whatever the struggle was that day. And it'd be, you know, I'd be a little little frustrated, but nothing I was really going to correct her or get hard on her about him when she was young. And uh, we'd sleep on it. And the next day, I'm like, well, God dang, she got over that. Or, or okay, now quit. She understands what I want her to do here. You know what I mean? And so... I think it's easy for people to get frustrated with young dogs, but sometimes you just need to give them a day or two and uh, they'll figure it out on their own. It's on, with her, it was definitely like, I just need to give her a day to sleep on it and she'll be fine tomorrow. And that's, that's how it was, you know. Well, from all of us at Duck South, man, we are very, very sorry for your loss. Because that is uh, 
tough, tough deal. Yeah, you know, she, she, her dad was Tony's old dog, Ruff. So, you know, a lot of people have seen that video that Tony did, Tony and Kate did, like a tribute video to Ruff. Um, So that was her dad. And then my puppy that I have now, that's Sadie's granddaughter and uh, one of our other guys, uh, Ben Fuyan. Uh, It's his dog's, uh, his dog's son was Sire. So, the pup I have now is still within the family, and and she's doing good. Um, she, but she she I, I I don't have any expectations of her feeling faded. She's that's for sure. So, but thank you, Rocky. I appreciate it, and everybody else. Well, before before we jump off here, because I don't want to leave the story with uh, without covering a little bit today because we still you, we still got about 10 or 15 minutes don't we i mean i i'm good till whenever i gotta start pulling teeth and then if you guys want to listen to some drilling and cutting and cussing then you can <laughs> hang around for some of that. <laughs> no that's okay right, you and ramsey you guys left it um uh, with you know we with development of some more into the Momarsh products. I kind of missed that week because I had I was with the kids at a at a 4H show and I had to dial in and put it on mute because th- there were issues with the recording right. software. But you guys discussed uh, you gotten further into the development of some you know a couple more Momarsh products. And that that brand starting to grow a lot, well, a lot more. Yeah, I mean, you know, so like during the early 2000s, we were still pretty much boat. I mean, you know, we were still a a layout boat company. I mean, that was bread and butter. Had some little, little, uh, you know, then Biz Lounge came along. But it it was pretty well, you know, it was. Times were good. We were selling lots of layout boats because that that portion of the, you know, it was something new to the market. And so uh, we were selling a whole bunch of them. Um, But it was pretty stagnant as far as product development went. You know, we had a a good, clean little product and and a heck of a following. Um, But, you know, we're still extremely niche, you know, just mainly boat and direct boat accessory type stuff. Uh, there through the early 2000s, you know, and, and during that period on the vet side, you know, we opened both, well, we built a clinic, we bought a clinic, and uh, times were tough, man. I mean, money was, we, we were bleeding money, um, working around the clock, you know, doing doing emergency work at night, and uh, uh, spending long hours in the office during the day, hoping that hoping that some people would come in and, and uh, you know, we could slow the bleeding to uh, to uh, a trickle versus uh, a steady stream, you know. And um, I think you and I touched a little bit about the, you know, the way that that can work. But uh, yeah, buddy, I mean, it was a lot of a lot of hard work during that time and some duck hunting, but uh, but but not a lot. I was back to uh, you know definitely a a uh, work focus and a family focus got married in 2002 had Corey in 2004 so you know uh 
all of my, well, not all, but the majority of my hunting during that period of time was dry field hunting, which there was very few people doing and, um, uh, hunting in, you know, central Missouri, really. Um, and the dry field hunting was very good, but again, I was spending a lot more time in the offices than I was in the field. And uh, no habitat flats at that point. Um, Lomar's pretty stagnant. And so if you get to 2005, that's really when when you know we have an event that happens. And, and uh, that was that uh, one of my dear friends, Jeff Sharan, uh, we had a mutual friend, his friend, really, Bob Plummer. And he had quite a few farms, but he but he had one in Sumner, right, directly attached to Fountain Grove, which is a, a public WMA here in Missouri. And it uh, just didn't really fit. You know, he lived on the other side of the river. All his other stuff is on the other side of the river. You know, it's a daggum swamp down there. And he was trying to farm it. And he, he was like, I want to get rid of that place. It's just too hard to farm, losing money, want to get rid of it. So make a long story short, um, we ended up buying that farm and uh so it's 420 acres and uh it's it's what we call locust grove and uh so we bought that and it was still you know that was last year that it was in in uh, tillable production and he bob said hey look uh you can either buy it for 22.50 an acre and i won't enroll it in wrp or you know, the WRP payment, and this was really nice of him. The WRP uh, lump sum payments, 12, 1250 bucks. So if you want me to, I'll enroll it. I'll take the 1250 and you can buy it for 1000 bucks an acre enrolled. Remember, oh, wow. I, I was, was going to have to come up 20% or something. I had nothing. And so uh, we didn't have any choice but to enroll it now. now and if I'd have had a crystal ball, for God's sake, I, we were idiots for enrolling it, but we didn't know that, and we dang sure we weren't going to come up with 20%. Uh, I forget what the math was now, but we weren't going to have the money to uh, put down to buy it in ag. So, uh, so we bought it, enrolled in WRP, and it's just been a, a great, great farm. Um, so a couple interesting old stories come along with that. I mean, remember, during that period of time, ground was just really – value was really going up quick and so oh, yeah. uh so he told us what he was going to sell it to us for and uh man yeah the bottom line is we didn't have the money to put down on it so we we're trying to you know sell our wives houses and, and everything that they owned that was that was uh liquid and uh scrape up some cat you know any kind of cash we could find anywhere and uh well his wife Bob had died. Bob died during this period of time. And so his wife called and she goes, hey, I just want to let you know that I had an offer for $1,500 an acre for that tract of ground we own. I'm like, oh, man, shoot, that sucks. And she said, well, look, I mean, I want to honor Bob's agreement with you guys. So, but, but I can't wait forever so you know you guys need to figure it out and uh i mean if you can put something together and and uh we can get this deal rolling quick and I'll, I'll tell this guy that that's what we're going to do but you know if it's something that you guys can't get done and 
uh, I'm going to need to sell it to this other guy that's offering half again what you're what you're going to pay. I was like, oh my gosh! So, you know, we dig deeper and bleed more and sell our left testicles and all that stuff to get the down money and and make it happen. But uh, you know, that was really nice and nancy to uh, to honor Bob's wishes there, and when she could have, you know, had. She's another $250,000, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because 20% of that was 420 acres at $1,000 an acre, 420 times 20% is going to be, what, 84000 It's a lot of cash yeah. for a guy that just opened a vet clinic. I mean, yeah. I, I'm going, yeah. th- I'm going through it, and you tell me every every time we talk, man, I, I don't, I don't wish to be back in you and Roy-Ann's shoes at all. That that. So, how close a time period is it between you and Aaron opening the vet office and and buying this land? Well, I mean, we, how long have you been open? Clinic. We bought one clinic in 2000, and we built the other one in 2001. So it's been you know four or five years. But still, it's not like we were by any means rolling in the dough. Right. In fact, I should have named my part of it Kelly Grove because we ended up selling my wife's house. And I think that was like $20,000 of the money that I scraped together. But but now it's, it's turned into a hell of an investment. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we don't have any plans to sell it for God's sake. But yeah. no, uh, no, at all. But if you, if worst came to worst, I mean, if you had to, it would be one heck of an investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way better than a dang rental house. I guarantee you that. <laughs> I got some of those too. I, you know what I call them all? Hemorrhoids. <laughs> you sound like me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to laugh so hard. Really, uh, yeah, can't get rid of them. Once a year, they're going to be painful, and that's when the well, on, in ours because ours is in a college town. Uh, once a year, that hemorrhoid's very painful. Yeah. She. She. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, if I'd have, so, had, you know, geez, there was some good money to be made back then, but anyway. So, let's, just a few minutes on Locust Grove. Um, so, overall, when you when you first got it, it, it of course, it's in the heart of um, Missouri waterfowl country, I guess you'd say. But In a good spot. From where it is today, how how long did it how long did it get how many years did it take before that motor was humming good? Oh man. I mean a while. It gets better all the time. But uh you know, so in the beginning, you know, you you, you uh put your plan together with NRCS on what you're gonna do and the wet's team and all the development work and improvements and all that and so you know, we went through, did all the construction, got everything signed off on, got the money, go to hunt it in 2006, 
and so we're this in the middle of nowhere. There's no power, no nothing. So we're running. We had two two wells, and they were both pretty good for that part of the country. We're running them with the vertical turbine uh, pumps, which is basically like a grain auger with a with a fifty horse John Deere power unit on each one. So, you know, you got to get them fuel, you got to change the oil, you got to risk life and limb with a PTO shaft that's spinning like crazy and and clutches and and all that stuff. And so it was a it was a pain in the ass, and uh, and expensive. And so we start pouring the water this deal. And I've got all my, you know, topographical maps and grid lines and we know what level our water control structures are set at and all that stuff. And we get to the full pool and I look at this damn puddle out there. And I'm like, huh, that sure isn't much water. Now mind you, the federal government had spent a hundred and ninety thousand dollars of of money on all this infrastructure, okay? And they've already paid the contractor, signed off on everything, all that stuff. I'm looking at this daggum puddle out there. I'm like, this is not what I was expecting. So I go and pull the stuff and get my maps and get my topo lines and all that and start stepping things off. I'm like, man, something, water does not lie. Water is the ultimate level. I mean, there is no way unless, uh, moon and sun shift where they are that water is not going to be level and uh so i'm looking at this and i, I call up my contact in rcs and i'm like man you guys got to come out here man something is i mean maybe i'm just looking at this wrong but there is something that is not right and they're like oh yeah i'm sure it's fine da, 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 da. i'm like okay so we we hunted that year and you know we killed a few ducks and uh so that spring they come out would you believe that the main the primary benchmark that, that they had used for the whole construction project was off a half a foot so the whole everything was underbuilt by six inches all the way across the 420 acres that's a big deal guess what guess what happens then well, Uncle Sugar gets to dig a little bit deeper and redo the whole thing. Wow. Year one wasn't too good because we didn't have much water. And like I've said before, they call them waterfowl for a reason. And uh, so, you know, uh, that was that deal. So we, we got that all fixed up. And, you know, back then, man, I, I mean, golly, you know, I'd been hunting so many other places. I still... I still had so many other places that I was used to hunting and had good relationships. Uh, I mean, I hunted Lux Scrub plenty, but I hunted other places a whole, whole lot. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, the hunting in the beginning was nowhere near what it is today. You know, I mean, we've done huge, you know, I forget what year it was. It was probably like 2000, I'm going to say 2012, maybe. I'd have to look back in my book. But uh, we ran we ran electric 3.2 miles, uh, and and it was a cost shared deal. I think there were six or seven partners that cost shared it. Um, but we we ran electric all the way back to our place, and that was a major game changer. You know, then we were able instead of operating with fossil fuels and all the nightmares and expense that that has, we we're able to convert over to electric, and 
man, that just, that made it so much cheaper and so much more efficient and so much less work and uh, all that. So that was a major game changer. And every year we identify one or two, you know, improvement projects that we want to do. And we get in touch with uh, with our RCS guys and get compatible use agreements from them to do whatever, you know, maybe we want to improve this 10 acres or we want to, you know, improve or change this water control, just all kinds of different stuff. And and so, you know, I've already got the things we're going to do for next year identified right now. And uh, so every year it just keeps getting better and better and better and better. And, and our numbers just keep going up and up and up and up. Close is that to habitat flats now? I mean, is it a short distance or is it a? Well, remember habitat flats. I mean, people think of it as one entity because, I mean, that's our public. Uh, you know, we're one company, but I mean, we own a bunch of different tracks, and so um, I mean, it's right next to several of them. Yeah, but it's kind of, you know, it's on the east side of a wma and right right next to the you know real close to the refuge we have our own refuge on that 420 acre piece um but then you know everything else is east of it so there's just lots of good traffic coming and going from swan lake grand pass all our habitat flat stuff other private managed areas you know there's a lot of traffic that comes up and down that way What's one thing that you've seen now that you've you've been there what fifteen years, fourteen uh, yeah. years? Well, and I hunted what? that area for a long time before that, but that's how long I've been living there. Yeah. What What have you seen change? Well, let's let's go all the way back in the time that you've started hunting in that general area to now. What What's something that you've seen change? Yeah, so when I talk about general area, I'm going to talk about, you know, there's two big refuges right there that are about four miles apart. So you got Fountain Grove, which is a uh, Missouri MDC uh, area. And so, you know, there's public hunting there. Uh, it's a draw. Um, uh, it's got two refuges on it, one on each side. And we have quite a bit of ground on the east refuge there. And then to the east of that, southeast of that, is Swan Lake. So Swan Lake's a federal wildlife refuge. It used to be like, you know, the self-proclaimed goose capital of the world. The whole eastern prairie population of Canada geese used to come there and winter there. And that was really why people went there, was to shoot Canada geese. And then that all kind of changed. And, and I think some of the changes that we saw with the Canada goose in Sumner I think some of that are the same types of changes that, that people down south are seeing going on with mallards, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, and so, you know, for many years, the the peak numbers that would be reported uh, on Fountain Grove um, when there was a certain set of managers there and kind of pre-habitat flats was, you know, 30 to 50,000 ducks. That, that was that was a high number of ducks for Fountain Grove to be holding. Maybe 60, you know, but that was that was kind of a good good peak number. Um, and then you and then we started doing what we were doing in 2008, 2009, 
And when we started, you know, providing a lot of food, uh, the numbers pretty much doubled. So, you know, it was common for Fountain Grove to, to have a peak number that was between 70 and, and 100,000 ducks. Um, I mean, there were just more food resources and, and you know, safety uh, available to those ducks. And remember, back then, we weren't hunting as many people as we are nowadays. So, you know, I mean, they, they had... They had all the things duck wants. They had food, cover, shelter, uh, refuge. Um, so, you know, doubled the number of ducks that had historically stayed on Fountain Grove. And then uh, we got a new manager. Oh, man, I'm going to say Brian became the new manager of Fountain Grove probably like four years ago. When he became the manager and started becoming way more proactive on on moist soil management and, and providing better food and, uh, you know, getting really serious about the refuge areas and, and not letting people go squirrel hunting in them and all kinds of crazy stuff that was going on before. That number pretty much tripled uh, as a peak since Brian's been there. So now, you know, we went from maybe 70 to 100,000 as the peak to, you know, 250 to a half a million ducks being the peak and even more for short periods of time. And uh, so, you know, our number of ducks in our little micro environment is really gone up. Um, and, and I mean, at least in my opinion, right, wrong, or indifferent, um, the things that I just laid out are, are very clear reasons why uh, to me. And the number of ducks, it's a, it's a federal wildlife refuge where, you know, they don't really do much at all in the way of, of intense habitat management over there. Um, I think they have their hands tied some, whatever. But anyway, uh, and they migrate, do some public hunting over there. Migrating waterfowl at that juncture where where you guys are, I think that people, a lot of people don't understand, but that's kind of, ducks and geese can go either way kind of from that northern Missouri area, where the, whether it be down the Central Flyway or the Mississippi Flyway, correct? Yes, but and some of them just jump the mountains. I mean, that's kind of a, just a, one of the huge, to me, it's just an opinion. I don't know the science behind it. I'm not saying that it is. But that is a huge staging area for waterfowl, and they go a lot of different ways from that northern Missouri part of the world yeah i mean i don't know northwest you know, talking you hear a lot of people talk about the golden triangle and, and that's where we are you know so basically you know you got grand pass swan lake fountain grove dalton cutoff and uh, those kind of form the golden triangle and yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a pretty major staging area for sure um cool uh, part of the country oh it is very 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 uh, important part of the migration. Um, you know, you, you guys have been, last thing we'll cover real quick. You guys have had a lot of heat thrown your way. Tony and I have talked about it before from, from Louisiana people, from the FFL guys. Mm -hmm. God. Not trying to go uh, fight them back on the air by any means, but I think that 
people really understood the migration and what you guys do uh, for these migrating waterfowl that are, geez, man, I mean, some of them have in bad shape and they get to y'all and that area, like I said, you know, people love to throw that, that, um, Tony and Ira and all the habitat flats and all those places are planting this corn and shortstop and duck. I don't I think that's a very, very small part of y'all's plan of your, um, habitat plan. Because what I saw when I was there a few years ago was more moist soil uh, projects going on than anything. Man, I can talk about all this for weeks. I mean, there's just, it's, you know, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people, they look at whatever's going on through their own eyes, right? That's what people do. And, and but the, the scope of what's going on is so much bigger than just what you see, even if you're just talking about in your area. So I could talk for a week about like, what were, how many ducks were at Grand Pass 10 years ago? How many are there now? What are their patterns? Uh, same thing, you know, let's look at what's happened at, at Fountain Grove and all that stuff. Um, and why are the ducks there now versus down there? And, you know, if you look at the area-wide numbers, so you said, okay, in the Golden Triangle, how many ducks are there versus how many ducks were there 10 years ago? I don't think that number's changed so much. Um, it may have gone up some. But I think the distribution's changed for sure. Um, but, you know, to get a little more to your question, like you just look at our place, Locust Grove. I, I can look at our, I mean, I keep very detailed records of what happens there and, and what the year was like and what the conditions are and all that. And so we don't kill any more ducks when we have flooded corn than when we only have moist soil. The numbers are it does not matter. The numbers will be the same whether we have corn there or not. So, like, this year, we had one little bitty patch of corn on Locust Grove. It got flooded when it was just dang near May. Uh, I, I don't think there's going to be any significant duck use uh, for it because it kind of got rotted, you know. It was underwater for oh, a week when it should have been, you know, it was just starting to fill out and get get kind of hard you know so we'll we'll see but uh but in the years where we've had no corn we kill as many ducks as we do and when we have have corn and so the people there's such a misconception that if you have corn you're gonna kill ducks well there's so much more to it i mean pressure management trumps that a million percent there's a lot of people i mean you look at st charles county here where i'm sitting right now Every damn club, not in a year like this, none of them have any crops this year. Water's been too high, but in a normal year, I mean, most of them have flooded corn. Guess what? They don't kill a dang thing because those ducks, yeah, they, they may use it, but they're going to use it at night. So, you know, it, there's right. just too much pressure and too much unregulated pressure. And I don't care if you have moist soil or corn or what you have, but if you hunt a spot every day, from sun up to sundown, it's like spanking your kid or beating your dog or pushing the button to shock it. You're going to teach those ducks what they should be doing, and they, they learn it very quickly. So 
I would get back to it again. We talked about it before, but you know, people's people's mindset of what's realistic and what's not is where the problem is. You know, some dude in Louisiana leases the pit line in a rice field for five thousand ducks and or dollars and, and for his seat or whatever the case may be, and he feels like he's entitled to shooting his limit every time he goes. That's the problem. The problem is that people don't have an accurate grip on reality. You can't just beat a place no matter where you live, what state you live in, or any of that. You, you've got to treat it appropriately for how good it is to try to give those ducks some sort of resource that keeps them coming back. And that's what we do, whether it's more soil or corn or whatever. You know, we're just spoon feeding those ducks resources so that they're happy and they keep coming back to it. Because if we go in there and, and get rid of them, and don't give it to them on a migration day, 100%. I mean, we have a very, very strict management protocol from a hunting and pressure standpoint that allows us to keep having a, uh, you know, a, a harvest that that's uh, responsible um, that keeps them on the hook. You know, if you don't do that, we'd be we'd be just like everybody else. You know, we'd bang them up for a day or two on a flight day, and then we'd be sitting there twiddling on our thumbs till the next time. You know, it's hard enough even when you manage it perfectly or as perfectly as you can. Still hard to shoot ducks every day, even when you got great spots. Yep. So, you know, I mean, it, it's very complex. I mean, it's not like we're going to sit here and I'm going to say, okay, well, here's the secret because that's not how it works. But, um, you know, people's perception, thinking that I had a crappy season because I didn't go shoot my limit five times or whatever. I mean, a, you got to have a good spot, and B, you just you got to keep them on the hook. I think if more people thought about it that way, and and had a more realistic expectation, they'd get more enjoyment out of their season. I agree. I agree. It's something that I want to talk about a little bit more. Uses... I I, I want to spend some more time on this later on. I mean, because this is about your story, but. I think Ira McCauley, you are the innovator, but the habitat manager and what you've created up there is a maybe even a better story than what you guys have done. Yeah. And I mean, the bottom so, line is, I don't care who you are, unless you're an absolute outlaw, you're not going to kill a duck that shows up five minutes after shooting time and leaves 20 minutes before. So whether you got flooded corn or millet or buckwheat or rice or whatever it is, um, you got to keep them in there during the day or you're, you're not in the game. See, I, I agree with you. I think pressure management is one of the keys that a lot of people are missing. See, I think that's what's happened in the Boot Hill of Missouri. One of the hot spots of the early 2000s, and now there's a pit blind in every 40 acres, and there are no birds there anymore, hardly. And, you know, they've had a rough season the last couple of seasons. I don't know. I hope it comes back around for them. Um, and I'm sure it probably will. But, yeah, they, they've struggled here recently. I think pressure management is a huge key to success. But, Ira, I know yeah, you've got yeah. a lot to do. Thank you for going overtime with me. I'll, I'll send your uh, time and a half check to you. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, I, I'll do. I'll do dang near anything to avoid pulling teeth, man. It's uh, you know they call it pulling teeth for a reason. <laughs> I don't know I if I can afford your time to avoid it too. 
<laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I work for whiskey, okay? <laughs> and I That's like great. cheap whiskey. <laughs> Ira, thank you, man. I appreciate it. We want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. 